Welcome to Pomegranate Health, a podcast about the culture of medicine. I'm Mick Cavazzini for the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Today's podcast is about making the most of routinely collected data to help tune up your practice. There are gigabytes of information added to electronic health records every day, but they're usually designed to guide management of the patient or the hospital. In a field known as practice analytics, these data are transformed to provide clinicians with a bird's eye view of their caseload and performance. The basic idea isn't new. There already exist registries that compare complication rates between organisations, but the resolution is too coarse for the individual practitioner to learn much. Maybe you've gone to the effort to conduct a retrospective audit of records to get better metrics on your team's performance. But who's got the time, right? As we'll hear, Practice Analytics seeks to provide personal feedback to clinicians with a faster turnaround. It can draw attention to cases that stood out from the trend, not for any regulatory purpose, simply to help you reflect and improve. This could even act as a shortcut to meeting the dreaded new requirements for CPD imposed by the medical boards. Practice Analytics is one of 40 projects being tackled by the Digital Health Cooperative Research Centre. The Digital Health CRC has partnered with the RACP, as well as many government health departments and providers of health tech. The collaboration is midway through a seven-year Commonwealth grant that was secured by Professor Tim Shaw and collaborators. So thanks. Yes, I'm Professor Tim Shaw. I'm Professor of Digital Health at the University of Sydney. I'm also the lead researcher in the Practice Analytics project we're going to talk about today. Um, And joining us from the Melbourne studio, uh, that's to say his office, is David Rankin, Director of Clinical Governance and Informatics at Cabrini. Hi. Thanks, Mike. So practice analytics is about using clinical indicators from medical records to help a clinician reflect on their practice. David, what kind of indicators are we talking about? I've, I've heard you describe how when you started your role, you had a list 131 items long. Are these all coming from the EMR or are there different sources as well? It's been a fascinating journey. And as you reflected, yes, we had something like 131 indicators around the hospital. And when I tried to trim those down and say, well, which ones are actually meaningful for clinicians? There's very few. With hospital operations, the data has always been used to inform management. And when I look at the KPIs that our chief executive focuses on each month for her board reports, they're completely irrelevant to clinicians. <laughs> Specifically, what are the the handful of indicators that you've honed in on and identified as being valid? First of all, we, we look at core procedural processes. How long did the patient spend in theatre? How long did the patient spend in hospital? And then we have a few indicators that try to predict outcomes. These are things like, did the patient have a met call and end up in ICU? That's, that's unexpected. Um, did the patient end up going back to theatre? Did they have a bleed or did they have some complication that took them back to theatre? Again, that's unexpected. Um, did the patient come back to hospital within 28 days of discharge? That's not always expected. Sometimes it is, but it's usually not expected. Um, did the patient uh, have a transfusion for a procedure that doesn't usually require a transfusion? Um, we have some other metrics, like did the patient um, have robotic surgery um, or laparoscopic surgery um, when those sort of interventions are not normal for that type of patient? Maybe just 
taking a step back, tell us about your, you've got a cohort of 300 odd proceduralists. So when you pick out any one of these indicators, are you looking at a a plot of each clinician's score on that metric? And, and So we have a two-stage process. As soon as I get notified that a patient's gone back to theatre, I'll write to the doctor and say, were there procedure-related issues? Were there hospital-related issues? Have you done open disclosure um, are there issues that we should be aware of that we could put in place to try and avoid this happening again in the future? And that provides, usually within 24 hours, an immediate response from the clinician to tell us why this unexpected outcomes occurred. Then on a quarterly basis, we collate up all of the procedural outcomes for all of our specialists and provide them with a personal report. We break the procedures down into clusters. So all of the MBS codes for colonoscopy are put together for colonoscopy patients. Um, and then we look at the, the process of colonoscopy. Did they come in the night before? Um, how long did they spend in theatre? Were they day cases or overnight cases? Um, yeah, did they require a transfusion? Not usual for a colonoscopy, but every now and again one does. Um, did they come back? to hospital within 28 days. We then provide that data to the individual clinician saying, this is your outcome across these seven or eight indicators. These are your peers. Uh, these are your volumes compared with your peer volume. Uh, and then we highlight the cases of interest and say, here's two or three cases out of the 250 colonoscopies you did over this quarter uh, that, that you might like to have a look at because they they don't seem to have... Um, followed a normal pattern. Procedural medicine, surgery, it's a quite a constrained process and, and maybe those indicators are easy to, easy to pin down. Is it a more complicated process for other types of internal medicine? Procedural um, interventions are much, much easier um, to track for two reasons. One is hospital care is episodic. And a surgical episode tends to be a constrained single episode. You have your gallbladder out. Um, you don't have your gallbladder out again. You don't normally expect to come back to hospital for you to have your gallbladder out. But if you've got something like heart failure, you may well come back to hospital even if you're getting excellent care at regular intervals. And there's two problems. We might be on bypass next time you need to come back to hospital. So you'll end up at another hospital, which we have no idea about. Um, we don't track deaths after hospital. You're discharged from a Cabrini um, and we really don't know what happened to you afterwards unless the coroner writes to us and said, this patient died six weeks later. Um, please explain what you did. The gallbladder removal should fix the problem, whereas with other types of practice, it's a bit more trial and error. Will this medication work? What range do we want to get the the outcomes within? It's It's not quite as black and white, is it? I mean, I think in, in, in many of the non-procedural disciplines, that, that's where we perhaps use registries more as well. So, yeah. I mean, I've, I've worked in cancer more where, you know, there's a lot of work done around, um, you know, time to treatment. Um, uh, there's lots of metrics you can capture around somebody's chemotherapy protocols. You can capture um, chemotherapy close to death is one of the metrics that people use in terms of perhaps looking at overuse of chemotherapy at end of life. So, so I think there are other metrics we can use. So I think over time we will 
will start to use an interface between the type of data that Dave is talking about, which a lot of that is patient administration data, PaaS data, um, uh, and start to merge that in with the kind of clinical data that we have. And I think as the system matures, that's what we're going to have. The trouble at the moment, I think, is many of the registers we're creating are not actually used by clinicians very much. But, you know, how often those registries really turn around and start to feed that data back in is is limited. So at the moment, we're, we've got a, a more limited data set, particularly in the private health system. There's some key ones as well that we're looking at, certainly around um, patient-reported outcome measures and patient-reported experience measures, which give you a, a different set of data. And I mean, the oncologists, and I said I've done quite a lot of work in oncology, and they're, they're really keen to know what their patients think. You know, it really, it, it really is those problems and prems layers. That, I mean, there might be technically very competent, but they really don't know how, how their patients are responding, what are the patient reported outcome measures and so on. So yeah, there's, there's a definite hunger for that. And you know, it was a high a high-performing, potentially high-risk industry. It's unusual at this point that we're still just feeling our way. Mm-hmm. David, when we chatted briefly the other day, you said that performance data are often over-reliant on averages. It comes back to the issue that managers rely on trends and graphs. Um, The clinician relies on the individual patient. Mm -hmm. As soon as you give a clinician a graph or a trend, they immediately start to self-justify. Yes, but all my Mm -hmm. patients are older, all my patients are sicker, GPs only send me the nasty ones. This is the area that I specialize in, I've got a reputation. On the other hand, the cardiothoracic surgeon may have an average theater time that's within normal limits. Um, but that's because he's very fast and slick on most of his procedures, and he's probably had two or three that have been absolute disasters, and his average looks really good. You can look at median, but it really doesn't make a big difference. But when you go to that same clinician and say, look, you admitted Mrs. Smith last week, and this is what happened, let's talk about it you immediately get much more nuanced discussion and feedback that helps that clinician reflect. And we're quite happy if they say it was unexpected but unavoidable. Um, you know, I, I did the procedure because there really wasn't anything else and the patient desperately wanted me to and there was a chance that it was life-saving. That will completely throw out your averages but there's a good ethical, clinical judgment reason why the clinician did that procedure. If the clinician says, look, um, yeah, I wasn't paying attention and I probably should have done that, great piece of reflection. We say, excellent, thank you. Um, Let's just keep an eye on it and make sure it doesn't happen again. In, In one of your group seminars, which I'll link to on the website, Julian Archer, the former GM of education at the College of Surgeons, said, I think he was quoting a a government minister, we want all doctors to be above average. The absurdity of that statement highlights how tricky it is to present statistics in in a meaningful way. I mean, this comes to the heart of what we're trying to achieve here. This is about 
um, performance improvement rather than performance management, although obviously there's a tension between those two. So I think everything that David and Jeanette Connolly at the SAN and the other groups we work with is really working with clinicians to, 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 to continuously improve where they're at. So this is not about league tables. This is not about direct comparison of benchmarks. How you saw I mean, benchmarks. It's not, I don't think it's so much about those benchmarks. It's about giving teams and individuals access to information that will support their continuous proactive monitoring of where they're going and how they're performing as individuals and teams. So it's not about trying to pick the bad apple. It's a different mindset. We've had this in health for many years, this challenge that that every clinician has to be perfect. I mean, to err is human. This has been in, in the media for many years now in terms of we have to acknowledge that clinicians you know, make mistakes. They need to be helped. They need to continuously improve. Not everybody can be at the top of their game all the time. And to me, that underpins the whole idea of practice improvement and practice analytics. There are certainly cases that come up every now and again where we see a clinician that has a consistent pattern that is worrying. Um, that a surgeon will take a patient or group of patients back to theatre more frequently than we think his mm. peers do. It's not diagnostic. I can't tell if he's a good doctor or a bad doctor. But what I can look at is say there are some things that are happening around this doctor's practice or this doctor's patients that don't seem to be aligned with expectations. And so it gives me the opportunity to to engage the doctor and say, you might like to look at these patients. I don't know what's happening. I think, I think this needs to be explored. Uh, and we'll talk to the surgeon, we'll talk to the craft group, and sometimes we'll bring in an independent expert to have a look at a series of case studies. That's rare, um, but it's a integral and important part of performance management, performance appraisal, uh, clinical analytics. It shouldn't be the sole use of data to find those doctors that need an independent review. Most doctors have great self-evaluation and awareness uh, and are prepared to look at individual cases and see if they can improve and put those improvement processes into place quite quickly. Now you've you've suggested how all these dashboards don't necessarily mean anything. What's the right approach to presenting in this information? As a clinical informatician, I love dashboards <laughs> uh, and I play with them most of the day. Um, so I've developed this massive data dashboard for anaesthetists um, and I can look through and see all the different patterns and things like that. I've shared it with three or four of our anaesthetic leaders um, and they've gone stunningly quiet. <laughs> when I've taken that dashboard and teased out some of the issues and said, look, I think there's a problem with nausea and vomiting after anaesthetic with these small group of anaesthetists, they've said, oh, geez, David, this is brilliant. <laughs> You've really got to take the data and tease out the essence and then provide that essence in a meaningful way to clinicians. There are some clinicians that are great at playing with dashboards and spreadsheets and pivot tables and whatever, but we shouldn't assume that just because we've given clinicians access to their data or their dashboard uh, that we've moved the quality improvement process along. 
Um, when you look at reflections of the literature that was done a number of years ago where people were just given information and, and the literature shows that it doesn't have impact, it's like, well, that's no great surprise because there's nobody there to help you through with that. I think a key piece I've increasingly come to realize is what I'd call the David or the Jeanette factor, really, which is, which is really how we start to introduce the kind of learning analysts into this mix. Um, you know, so we, we have lots of other type of analysts within the system, but I'm increasingly seeing that we really actually need people that are much more closer to the coalface, really understand the clinical data, often have a clinical background themselves, but they have to be close to the teams because they've got to really understand the context of that hospital and of those care teams at some level. And, uh, you know, I imagine that's not, not a case of these doctors getting called into your office, David, you know, like getting called to the principal's office. Is, is it a more, uh, Four, is it, do they know that four times a year or something there will be these kind of meetings? Are they expecting this kind of depth? I think that's really critical. Caprini some years ago got itself into quite significant difficulty with the clinicians where a well-meaning um, senior doctor used data that was probably not as clean as it could have been um, to try and hold doctors to account. Um, and so the organisation started making changes to theatre availability based on things like on-time starts and theatre utilisation. And the data was not recorded well or accurately and it created quite a ruckus, which was most unfortunate. Over the last couple of years, I think we've built a much more um, trusting uh, arrangement, but there's a couple of things that we need to be careful of. Who has access to the data? Um, we put out our quarterly data uh, last week to most proceduralists, and I've been delighted with the emails that have come back. Most of them have said, Great data, David, thank you very much, really appreciated, really helpful. A couple have come back and said, Your data's wrong. Hmm. One of our urologists said, you said I only did two robotic procedures. I've looked at my data. I did three. You've missed one. Therefore, your data's crap. <laughs> That's opened up a great piece of discussion saying, look, I rely on these codes. Either you've put the wrong code in or our coders have done it wrong. And we've had several interactions now to improve the way we extract the data to make sure that, yes, we will next month pick up all of his uh, cases. Uh, others have come back and said, look, I don't think you should include this procedure in that group. It's skewing the data. I do a lot of this procedure. You're not comparing apples with apples. That's the type of dialogue that is incredibly useful and helpful and helps us continually refine uh, the reports that we put out. It also gives me assurance that the doctors that are receiving the reports are reading it uh, mm -hmm. and and we've got active dialogue. I, that's exciting. Yeah. You've both supervised research uh, staff who have surveyed practitioner responses to this practice analytics concept. Uh, and there's a lot, there is a lot of variation in sentiment on, on how granular they wanted the findings, on whether graphical or descriptive forms were more useful. Um, clinicians earlier in, the career, in their careers tended to be more enthusiastic than those already well-established. And this, this paranoia, of course, that analytics will be used as a stick Tim, take us over the most revealing responses from that 2019 survey in the MJA. So, look, we surveyed uh, quite, or we, we run a number of focus groups actually with clinicians at all different levels of uh, training and, and actually not just doctors, we talked to nurses and allied health professionals as well um, about what they felt 
about the use of performance data in this context. Um, and I, look, I don't think paranoia is the right word. I think there's genuine concern. Uh, I think there's, you know, it, it, they're rightly concerned about this data and information because, I mean, the truth is that it's often used against them. Uh, I mean, my experience in most hospitals is that usually it's built around a problem, which is, you know, at the whole heart of quality improvement, which has enormous value, right? But quality improvement is about looking back where you have a problem. So, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the first thing that we really experienced was there's a genuine enthusiasm for people to access this information. There's a genuine want to do that. Uh, obviously, with the caveats, though, that it's it's really it has to be done very carefully. So the quote I, I, I have from a young doctor was that if there's a policeman in the room, then I'll do the only the minimum that's required. So I think that really says that you know if you don't do this well, then doctors will see it as a as a fishing exercise to, to kind of trip them up, or the data will be used inappropriate downstream, and so on. So we have to build those structures in. Uh, EMR data I was seeing is looking at the world through a letterbox right. in a way. It's a it's a snippet of information. So that it, it's hard to draw a complex picture, which is why you need to then go into that kind of narrative discussion about what was the case what were the things around that what don't we understand from the data that's going there and there, there was a, a more positive quote in there as well from an, an oncology fellow who said honestly i think this is something i would drop everything to do otherwise how on earth would i know what i'm doing is right and that speaks to the issue of once you've finished your training there is no regular feedback there is nothing built in David, you've mentioned how this, how this understanding has matured in your time at Cabrini from what they thought it was going to be used for and what it's actually been useful. It raises the whole issue of benchmarking as well. Um, here in Victoria with VAHI, VAHI produce excellent reports on hospital-acquired complications by hospital, which at the management level creates quite some excitement. But that level of data is way too high to get clinical change. So looking at our infections, infections predominantly urinary tract infections and pneumonia. At an organisational level saying we've got a problem with urinary tract infections doesn't make change. Everybody gets focused on it, but it's, you don't have owners. Mm. It was only when we drilled down on urinary tract infections and said it looks like it's orthopaedics and then said it looks like it's elderly women in orthopaedics, and then said, well, it's actually the elderly women with fractured neck of femurs, that it got specific and we could start getting ownership. So we then approached the emergency department and said, look, you're putting catheters in, you need to tidy up your insertion technique. And we went to the orthopaedic surgeons and the wards and said, you need to make sure catheters come out on a timely basis. By getting specific and ownership, we've been able to reduce our urinary tract infection rates materially. So again, uh, it's different by craft group. So we look at cardiothoracic surgery, their hack rate, and we were alarmed when we saw there was something like 25% um, of cardiothoracic surgical patients had a hospital-acquired complication. Until we got data back from three of our other very comparable hospitals and found we were spot on, the the same average rate. We're now much more concerned about hospital-acquired complications in areas like ENT and ophthalmology, where their rate is tiny, but when they occur, they're eminently preventable. So benchmarking, again, goes back to this average. Um, it, you can look really good on average, but yeah. when you drill it down to an individual specialty, um, you 
you start to see variations that that requires action. Um, you know, in a recent IMJ on Air podcast, I talked with Graham Duke at Eastern Health Intensive Care about his research trying to validate the healthcare acquired complications program. But after auditing medical records by hand, he and his colleagues found that the presence of complications was rarely a marker of poor quality of care. It didn't indicate that best practice guidelines had been overlooked, but rather that the risks could have been predicted based on the patient's condition, on admission, and so on. Um, and David, you've got a couple of students who have drawn similar conclusions about length of stay as a clinical indicator. So yeah, what? how do you go about validating and making sense of the, these indicators that are still a few degrees of separation from, well, when there are so many confounds that can affect the patient outcomes? The challenge is what is perfection? <laughs> where where are we aiming for? I think urinary tract infection is a good example where so many uh, clinicians accept urinary tract infections as a you know a, an expected consequence, um, particularly in the frail elderly and, and places like that. And yet I'm on a, a hospital board who has a senior clinician from the US, um, and she's appalled hmm. at Australia's acceptance of urinary tract infection rates, even in the elderly, um, where her hospital in the US has effectively been able to completely eliminate uh, urinary tract infection. So the challenge is, yeah, what level of complications do we accept as, you know, uh, unexpected but unavoidable? And what do we owe to our patients as a reasonable standard of care? That That's a question I don't think we've really entered into in Australia at this stage. I think that's probably the next phase of um, performance analytics is, is what is best practice. Getting back to those focus groups, the surveys, the policeman in the room, which Tim said, it's it's not a paranoia, it's a real fear. I mean, you, you've also mentioned the Hadiza Bawagarba case where she was a paediatrician who lost her license to practice after the death of a seven-year-old child. Um, her notes, her reflection notes that her consultant had asked her to write were, were used in the hospital's internal investigation of the incident, though not to prove liability in court, as some media had reported. Have you already got some firm rules about who does get access to this and and how it is used? We have informal rules. I I, I think they need to be structured. And um, one of the components that I'm hoping that the DHCRC project will come out with is some some rules of engagement. Um, at what point should I inform my chief executive, who's a non-clinician, mm. um, about individual clinicians' performance? I think that should only occur where we, first of all, engage with the clinician and said we have a problem. We've engaged with the craft group lead um, within that craft group to say, yes, there is probably an issue that needs to be answered um, and probably undertaken uh, a, a, a chart review or a pattern uh, and then inform the chief executive that that we have identified a potential issue and how we're going to manage it. I don't think the non-clinicians should be party to those 
day-to-day conversations about patients of interest. Mm. So I think there's a lot we as clinical managers and informaticians owe to our clinicians uh, in providing them with comfort about how we're going to use the data, who's going to have access to the data, what the consequences of that access would be, uh, and and the process that we would use uh, to enter into a dialogue and investigation. So this might be a you know, like a, a terms of agreement form that both the, the practitioners and the hospital sign, Tim? So look, I think this area is, is one of our most challenging. I really do think it's, it's, it's a challenging area, perhaps bigger than the technical challenge yeah. in, in, in many respects is what, what's going to come out of this in the medical legal sense. And we do have a dedicated PhD, um, who's actually working on this. She just started. She has a legal background. So uh, I, I think we're, we're looking out of that project to have some really practical recommendations for organizations, um, about how we can best approach this. Cause it, it is, I think it's fair to say a little gray at the moment. But where the data is and where it sits and, and how you manage that. So uh, I, my, my great fear is that we'll, we'll, we'll overreact in one direction and, and then clinicians will walk away. So I think we have to get this right. Because if you have an organization where clinicians don't trust the leadership, then they're not going to touch the data or they're not going to engage. So regardless of how many frameworks or legal documents you have or however you approach it, I think if you don't have that trust bill, then it's going to fail. And that, that relationship between clinical leaders and administrators is something I'm going to talk about in another episode uh, because it, it all starts from there. But but in that webinar I mentioned before, you also had the past president of the RCP, John Wilson, on board, who was very clear that he had no interest in accessing practice analytics data for, from auditing point of view. The chair of the Medical Board of Australia, Dr. Ann Tompkins, said that the MBA would only ever get involved in the way they normally do if the practitioner and the hospital and the college hadn't done their due diligence to follow up. Absolutely. And I think there's a genuine commitment from MBA and others that are very aware of this project, obviously, you know, very supportive of the project, actually, because they want to see this come through. And then this isn't another layer of policing for them. This is not what they're wanting. They're absolutely wanting this to be the the supportive program that actually helps support the professional performance framework, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And and and, and I've never heard an Australian college want to have this yeah. data to use it in any way from a college perspective, to influence progression or, or, or scope of practice or, or however it might be. It raises a really interesting point. Data is so often seen in the negative. It's, it's there to catch the outliers. I think that probably a more important aspect of data is to give assurance to high-risk proceduralists in particular that they're doing a really good job. I had a surgeon call me about six months ago after he received his individual report and said, what does this all mean, David? I don't understand it. (laughs) And I said, hang on, hang on, settle down. First of all, it says you're a really good surgeon. You're performing slightly better than your peers on both length of stay and theatre time and your outcomes uh, on readmission rate are really low. Oh, he said, does it? I like this data. Tell me more. <laughs> and then we were able to say, but hang on, there's two patients that I think are worth looking at because the outcomes weren't what I expected. Oh, oh, he said, yeah, all right, you got me. Um, and we then had a really positive dialogue, mm-hmm. and he's now one of the champions um, of the data reports amongst his peers. So... 
giving this surgeon some of the, I, I don't know, perhaps first feedback that he had had, that he was a good, solid, high-performing surgeon, is really positive. We often don't see the data in that positive light. Well, Tim's already mentioned the professional performance framework, the dreaded you know, strengthened CPD that MBA has, has brought in this year. Category two is the reviewing one's performance, which typically has included feedback from colleagues and patients. Category three is called measuring outcomes and involve a time-consuming audit of patient records or incident reports. So it's it's early days yet, but Tim, do you think that practice analytics could automate some of the, the grunt work that's required for this? Absolutely. This is some of the, 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 the process um, we're looking at. And, uh, and looking, as you said, we're what, kind of only six weeks into <laughs> this program as it kicked off on the 1st of January this year. So the, 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 um, the policy and process and so on is still being worked out. The way I see it is if you're a physician or a surgeon at Cabrini and you take part in David's program, then you've been taking part in a meaningful reflective practice. And ideally, that should be an audited trail that goes straight up into your CBD platform. And we are experimenting with that um, at, at Sydney Adventist at the moment about whether you can automate that process. So if you've been in this process and you've done it, then you, you get your points. Because then I think everybody's happy. You haven't had to step out of your practice and go, oh, my God, where's all my data? Do that audit and try and make that happen. You know, ideally, I think we just had this continuous cycle of um, review and reflection. You can actually have your embedded experience within, within your facility and then that feed up. You know, you've, you've both mentioned other registries and the, the healthcare roundtable, which catches the hack rates at different hospitals. There's the quids in New South Wales, the quality improvement data system in in Victoria, Vilvahi, and the even even patient experience um, platforms called Hope. This isn't a whole pa a paradigm shift away from that. What, what it's doing is using the same sorts of data to prompt that conversation about uh, reflection, right? We see our performance data and registries working incredibly closely together. Um, as I said earlier, hospital data is episodic. We really only know the patient from the point of admission to the point of discharge uh, and other aspects of that data we really can't pick up on. Mm. Registries complement that enormously. And, you know, if I look at the joint registry, um, they follow patients for years afterwards that we don't do. They also uh, make sure that clinicians get access to data outside the one organisation. Um, so we only have access to Caprini data. Um, we don't know how our clinicians perform or, or operate at other hospitals, whereas the registry brings all of that together. So I think there's enormous opportunities for hospitals and registries to collaborate um, and, and ensure that we get much more complete, automated and streamlined um, data collection. Yeah, closing the loop. I mean, I think the challenge we fundamentally have is that none of these systems 
um, that ca- capture the data are designed to give it back <laughs> in, 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 in this way. I think this is the whole problem. I mean, all electronic medical records at the moment really just capture data. And again, it's episodic. It's around the patient. It's not, there's no attempt to really longitudinally aggregate and collect that data over time. Um, in, in New South Wales, we have a single digital patient record going in place at the moment, at least in all the public hospital systems. Those type of systems have huge potential to support a program like practice analytics, but it's not what the system's designed to do at the moment. It's probably the next generation where somebody will work through that actually these electronic medical records should be designed to wrap themselves longitudinally around clinicians as well as looking at the patient perspective. And in terms of the the behavioural aspect, I mean, listeners might rightly be sceptical of CPD generally. It's a bit of a chore and it's it's very hard to prove the effectiveness of CPD in changing practice. You know, there's so many degrees of separation to practice and outcomes. Whereas this this is a a lot more immediate. Um, Do you take heart from the work of the Department of Health's behavioral economics research team? They, a few years ago, sent nudge letters to GPs regarding antibiotic prescribing and they found that it was associated with a 12% drop in antibiotic scripts. Um, is, is that the kind of behaviour change that you'd like to be able to measure? A- absolutely. It's the sort of behaviour that we would like to quantify. It's, it's extraordinarily difficult. Organisationally, we've made enormous differences. We've more than halved our hospital-acquired complication rate. Um, we've almost eliminated night before admission for colonoscopy except for you know, the very frail, frail elderly. Um, we've um, reduced our, our average theatre time um, across a, a number of different procedures. Can that be attributed to sharing data with clinicians? That causation is extraordinarily hard to demonstrate but we believe it's absolutely made a contribution uh, and we'll continue to make a contribution because we've now got a point of discussion. I think clinicians don't necessarily look on that evidence around CME and CPD enormously positive when they think they've got to do their CPD. I think that's you know well recognised. But to change behaviour, I think you need to go much closer to the to the coalface of, of of where that care delivery is, and that's why we're shifting towards this reflection and audit where there is evidence, such as the study you started to show. It is really challenging though to show to actually demonstrate causality in, in outcomes for patients, but it's not impossible. So I mean, I think the ways you can actually create experiments um, to allow us to do this. And I think that's another interesting area for future research. As we get more mature understanding of somebody's practice, then can we use that to almost leapfrog over the um, the whole data display and, and actually start to send them case scenarios that relate to their practice? So we've been doing that particularly with young doctors, so looking at what they've been doing in ED overnight, and extracting the data down and understanding the cases that they've looked at, and then maybe send them three case scenarios that relate to challenging areas that we know young doctors might struggle with, some particular case areas. So I think that's another very interesting area of this, and it's that kind of link between learning analytics and, and practice analytics, again, to provide that education and feedback back. Yeah, so forgive me for picking at the um, pessimistic <laughs> outcomes, but you, there are perverse examples of the what gets measured gets managed uh, aphorism. For example, in the, in the UK, the infamous four-hour rule brought into the NHS emergency rooms almost two decades ago 
which is said to have caused a rush of low triage cases out the door just before the four-hour mark, while more seriously ill patients are left waiting longer than necessary. Are you worried that there might be such perverse behavioural responses, or is it is, it, is that it will it be easy to detect those and and accommodate? There's two sides to that. Do we worry doctors that they will be caught up in our performance process, so they only bring the easy cases to Cabrini? Yeah. Um, you know, a, a number of our orthopaedic surgeons work at two or three other hospitals. I don't know why they take some of their patients to one hospital and bring their patients to Cabrini. Um, at this stage, we're positive that our process of providing comparative data back to clinicians is seen as a, a comfort thing. Um, and most clinicians feel that that level of accountability is positive and therefore hold Cabrini in, in a positive light. Certainly, um, identifying cases of interest has allowed Cabrini to realise that there are some patients that we don't manage very well. Mm -hmm. Complex mental health patients, even if they're just coming in you know, for gallbladder surgery or a colonoscopy, are not managed well at Cabrini. And so we've had to ask ourselves, should we be admitting these patients when we know we don't have the resources to manage them if things go wrong. Uh, and we've decided, no, uh, as a private hospital, we can't offer the services that this patient, the comprehensive service that this type of patients really needs. Uh, and so we uh, encourage the clinicians to take those patients often to a public hospital, dare I say it, um, that has the resources and skills to manage that type of case. I think that's an appropriate improvement in the quality of care that we can provide. Um, is hmm. it cherry picking? I, I don't think so. No clinician chose their path because it's easy. They they they, they want rigorous feedback, um, and even if they're not working at Cabrini or Sydney Adventist, where you're also partnering and they don't have this architecture that you're building for them, they could easily use ex existing platforms and, and EMR data to, to start a culture of this themselves, right? David and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, we think probably one of the most useful outputs of this project, although there may well be technical outputs from it, is, is actually a guide, a how-to. Yeah. So if you're a hospital, how do you, how do you go about this? A, a final comment I'd make as well is I, I like David, have been working in this space for a long time, over 10 years or more in terms of looking at this area. And I think this project's the right time now. As many of these things are falling into place. So we've got access to better data, more data. We've got a different breed, I guess, of, of people like David that are interpreting this data. Um, we've got the professional performance framework coming into place. The stars are aligning a, around this a little bit. Uh, uh, but, but I think it could be, I still see that we have a very delicate flame that David's holding in his hand <laughs> that could be stamped out, right? If we don't get this right, if it becomes about the policeman, you know, it, it could just go into that other line of, okay, it's another thing where people have to do it. But I think we've got a number of the, the, the stars aligning to allow this to actually really be productive as long as we build the trust and we continue to build that information and we continue to work with people like David to really understand how you do this effectively. I guess the other way to look at it is at, at an organisational level, because we, I mean, we've got 22 operating theatres in our main hospital here in Melbourne. We're opening two more in April. Um, those two new theatres are already fully subscribed mm. 
um, and we haven't met the demand. So are we scaring surgeons off? The evidence says no. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. Many thanks to Tim Shaw and David Rankin for contributing to this episode of Pomegranate Health. The views expressed are their own and do not constitute the opinion or advice of the RACP. To follow up on any research cited in this interview, please go to racp.edu.au slash podcast and click on episode 92. There's a full transcript there embedded with links and a shortcut to resources that explain the MyCPD framework and help you meet requirements. You'll also find music credits and a thank you list of the reviewers who provided feedback on early drafts of this podcast. Please share it around with colleagues. And if you have any comments to make, you can post them to the website or send them directly to me via the address podcast at racp.edu.au. Thanks for listening. I'm Mick Coatsini, and this episode was produced on the unceded lands of the Gadigal people of the Yura Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present and their ongoing connection to the country I'm fortunate to share.